1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers together, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the word of the Lord. for your love and for your mercy. And Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And you know, this is the, the fifth week of Redemption Church being together for worship. And we are just overjoyed uh, by what God is doing and uh, overjoyed by the fact that we have to relocate um, just due to space limitations. So we'll be moving next week to Community Christian School. And we are just so excited about that. And I uh, think that will be a, a good venue for worship and for our children for the the weeks to come it's covenanting together in august we're, we're looking at the scriptures to really understand what is the body what is the church how did god design the church and so today we're looking at first corinthians chapter 12 which miss Susie just wonderfully read for us and one of the things we see as we begin to look at this passage is that the 
Paul uses this analogy of the body. Now, the human body is a, a pretty fascinating thing. You know, it's, it's interesting, as scientific and medical technology progresses, we learn more and more fascinating truths about the way God designed to, to work and to function. For example, you might be interested to learn some of these facts about the human body. That your brain has the potential to hold 2.5 gigabytes of data. And that's the equivalent of recording 300 years of video in your brain. Your brain has a massive capacity. The trouble is just recalling it, right? <laughs> but the human nose can remember up to 50,000 different scents and smells. That a full head of human hair, a problem I have, right? But if you had a full hair of human hair, it's strong enough to hold around 12 tons. That the human eye can distinguish about 10 million different colors. That if the human eye were a digital camera, it would have a resolution of 576 megapixels. So the human body is, is estimated to have 60,000 miles of blood vessels. So to put that into perspective, if you line them up, the, 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 the circumference of the earth is only 25,000 miles. So it would loop the earth twice plus a little extra if you lined up all of our blood vessels in a row. I mean, the human body is fascinating. And of course, today is not a time for an anatomy lesson. I'll leave that to biologists. But, but the body does testify in some marvelous way the, the intricacy of God's design as his human creatures. And so the fascinating aspect of the human body, though, to me, isn't just these individual organs, the eyes, the brain. All of those are, are pretty miraculous and wonderful. But I think the astonishing thing as we think about the human body is that they cooperate together. That the organs and all these organ systems end up coming into place and all these organ systems end up working together to produce one body. One body. And so as Paul is writing this letter to the church of Corinth, as he's addressing issues of spiritual gifting, and of course dealing with some division within the church of Corinth, he invokes this metaphor of the human body to illustrate his point. And he uses this wonderful metaphor, the human body, to describe his church because it, it really communicates both the unity of the body, but also the diversity of the body. The unity of the body and the diversity of the body. So as we give our attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 through 26, we will discover the beauty of God's arrangement of the church and its unity and diversity. So here's the, the sermon in a sentence. Here's the summary statement, right? That the church is united yet diverse with each member arranged by God in their gifting to build up one another in community. I'll say it one more time in case you got it. It should be on the screen, right? The church is united yet diverse with each member arranged by God in their gifting to build up one another in community. So as, as we unpack this text, we're going to see three aspects of the way God designs his church to function. So the first one is that we are united in one spirit. The second is that we are arranged in diversity. And third, we are reliant in community. So let's just talk about the first one of those, that we are united in one spirit. We see this particularly in verse 12 and 13 in the passage before us. So Paul wrote this passage to the Corinthian church. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, if you know the, the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a 
a church filled with problems, isn't it? <laughs> in fact, I never understood why anybody would want to name their church like Corinth Baptist Church. I just think, what a bad precedent to set for yourselves, right? Um, but the Corinthian church was a church with a lot of issues, you know, which gives us hope, right? That, 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 that we have a lot of issues that we got to work through, right? So the Corinthian church was being ripped apart by division, by factions that were forming in the church. And so the source of the disunity was that Paul's addressing here was over the nature and function of spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of tongues. Now, it's not my intention to go whether into today whether that is a gift that continues today or not. We'll leave that conversation for another time. But that's the issue here that's ripping up this church, that those in Corinth who possess this gift of tongues were exalting themselves over the rest of the body. They thought this gift of tongues makes us, in some sense, spiritually superior over those who don't have this gift. So Paul, in his customary boldness, right, he rebukes this sinful attitude within the church. He rebukes it for a couple of reasons. One, it's just for its effect on the church, on the congregation, that these people are, are being divisive and creating hostility within the members, creating rivalries. But he rebukes it also because... It's insane to think that the gift of tongues makes you better than anybody. It's lunacy. Because after all, Paul says, how can, how can one spiritual gift be better than all the others? After all, Paul says, every spiritual gift is bestowed by the Spirit himself. Right, look at what Paul says. You got your text open. Look at 12, a little bit earlier, verse 4 through 7. Look, he says, now there are a varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what is Paul, Paul doing? He's buckling down a bit and he's reminding them that it's the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who, who gives the gifts. And those gifts are given by His grace. Now this Spirit gives a variety of gifts. They're not, we're not all given the same gifts, but Paul says, nevertheless, the origin of those gifts is the same. It comes from the Spirit. So we don't acquire our spiritual gifting because of our own skill, because of our own gen, uh, ingenuity, because of our own discipline per se, but we receive our spiritual gifting by God's gracious empowerment. He gives it to us. And so because... These gifts are a gift of God's grace by the Spirit. Boasting is excluded, right? Boasting doesn't make any sense. It's insane to, to boast of your spiritual gifting because you didn't do it. God gave it to you. And so Paul notes that, that God gives us these gifts in order to edify the saints, to build them up, to build up the church, never to flaunt one's own spirituality over another. But through boasting... The Corinthian church was actually perverting their spiritual gifts. They were using their gifting in the opposite way that God intended them to be used. These gifts aren't given to puff yourself up and make you look more spiritual than every other church member. But rather the gifts were given to them to be service and service to the rest of the body. Your gifting is not about you, right? It's about others and caring for others. So Paul frames this conversation of spiritual gifts, and as he begins to frame this conversation for the church of Corinth, he begins to drill down in discussing the unity of the church. He says, we are united because we all have been given the same spirit. 
Now, the Spirit gives these gifts differently, but every gift, both in kind and in degree, finds its source in the Spirit's power, not our own power. And it's within this conversation that Paul uses this illustration of the human body to make his point, and it's quite an effective one. So look at verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ, he says. So the body, he says, it's a wonderful illustration because it exhibits both the unity of the church being one and the diversity in the church and its differing members. So though the body is one, it's made up of all sorts of various components. I mean, think about your human body for a second. You have one body, don't you? But yet it's made up of various cells, cells, thousands, millions of cells that come together to form organs. And those organs come together to cooperate in organ systems. And those organ systems are dependent upon one another for their survival in order to form one body. It's amazing the way that works. And Paul says this is the way the church is. This is what the church is like. It's united as one, but yet it's diverse as it should be. Paul goes on to say, right, in the text... He says that we're all baptized into one body, one body, no matter our background. So to make the point explicit, he actually addresses the diversity within the church, both on an ethnic level and socioeconomic level, right? The church is made up of Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, Paul says. You see, the unity of Christ's church ought to transcend societal distinctions of race and class. People in America, it's no secret, turn on your television screen, they're very divided, aren't they? There's a lot of division in our country, in our circles, and perhaps it's a part of our sinful human nature, but we all tend to naturally associate ourselves with those who are like us. People who think the way that we think. People who are like us in our skin color who are like us in our economic position, in our class, who are like us in our political philosophy, who are like us in every way. We just like to be around people who are like me, like us. So because the church has has hesitated in encouraging and cultivating ethnic and economic diversity within a local church, churches today, at least in America, tend to be exclusively homogeneous, right? They all tend to be made up of the same type of people. And as anyone can tell you, sadly, the most segregated hour in America usually takes place at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, isn't it? But nevertheless, this continues to be a perplexing blind spot for us, particularly in our American context. And the church has to think through these issues together. You know, I used to serve at a church in Charleston as a youth minister in college. And while I was there, someone told me a story Uh, that one time a a black man visited on Sunday morning and a group of white deacons took the guy outside and told him to find a church with people like him. Uh, You might be thinking that this was in the racial heat of segregation in the 1960s. No, this was in the 1990s. 1990s. Racism is often subtle. It's inconspicuous. It's often invisible to one's own self-perceptions, but we would be fools to acknowledge that each of us in our own sinfulness don't have tendencies to prejudice. And thankfully, many evangelicals are starting to have conversations about these issues today, and I'm grateful for it. 
They're having conversations about these issues of race within the church. And, and these conversations are difficult. They're slow. It's easy to miscommunicate and misunderstand one another. But they're conversations that need to happen. And particularly those of us who are white and evangelical, we must listen carefully to the concerns of our black brothers and sisters in Christ. We must seek to understand their own experiences and listen to their critique even of our own white evangelical subculture. You see, at Redemption Church, it's my hope, it's, I hope it's all of our hopes that God would make us an ethnically diverse congregation. That Redemption Church would in so many ways begin to reflect more accurately what heaven will be like, right? That's what we should desire, so we should long for, that as God brings us families of different cultures and ethnicities, that all of us would be ready and willing to receive them and accept them and to love them and worship alongside of them, not as superiors, but as equals at the foot of the cross. After all, we have all been made to drink, Paul says, of the same spirit. The cross ought to, and it does, it demolishes the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, Paul says, right? Between black and white, between Hispanic and Asian, the gospel is what demolishes those barriers. And as we focus on the unity we have in Christ through the gospel, and as we pray for unity in the midst of ethnic diversity, this is the way God intended his church to be. And we should encourage that and seek to cultivate that. But, you know, in addition to ethnic division within the church, Paul also in the Corinthian church, he references economic division as well, these socioeconomic levels, that whether in wealth or in poverty, we ought not to show partiality to one another. I mean, some of us in this room, I'm sure if we uh, asked around, right, some of us are in very different tax brackets, <laughs> right? But nevertheless, nevertheless, there should be a bond of family love for one another that transcends class distinctions in our society. That there is no room for pretentious pride or economic elitism within the church. So we must remind ourselves, right, of James's warning in the book of James, right, this warning against partiality. If you remember from, from James chapter 2, right, James describes a, a scenario in the church. He says, imagine, you know, that a man comes in to worship on Sunday morning and he's wearing a gold ring a designer suit. I mean, he looks slick. He looks fancy. He looks wealthy. And at the same time, James says, another man comes into worship, and he's dressed in shabby clothes, maybe a bit smelly, a little dishuffled. And James tells us that, that if we welcome that wealthy man, and if we begin to bend over backwards to try to accommodate and make him comfortable, and we, we give him a seat at the front, or if he's a Baptist, we'll give him a seat at the back, right? The best seat in the house, <laughs> right? Whatever seats preferred, we give it to him. We say, you know, sit here. Let me get you a cup of water. Let me get you a cup of coffee. Let me make you at home. And then the poor guy comes in and nobody talks to him. And we force him to stand in the back or to sit on the floor. James tells us that we've committed the sin of partiality. But James says part of loving your neighbor as yourself is refusing to show partiality in terms of economic distinctions. That we must welcome all people, whoever they may be, no matter how much money they're able to put into the offering plate. We all have been brought together. We have all been brought up in a culture that has taught us to make distinctions based off of race and class. This is what we've grown up with. It's the air we've been breathing since our childhood. But nevertheless, 
the church must repent of these tendencies, repent of these trajectories in our hearts, our own sinful hearts, right? And we must exhibit a unity in our fellowship that confounds the world. It confounds the world. They can't understand it. That what better testimony of the power of Christ than a visible local community made up of different races and economic means all coming together, worshiping as one body to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a testimony. So how can you be active in promoting this sort of unity and redemption church? If this is something we want to cultivate, and I pray it is, how can we be a part of it? Well, it's not really hard, but it does require intentionality. Extend an invitation to someone you don't know in the church. It starts just with us, right? Find somebody you don't know. Christian community is often uncomfortable. Befriend those who don't have any friends. Talk to the person whom no one is talking to. Invite them out to lunch. Pray for them. Get to know them. Get to know their burdens, their temptations, their sins. Share in their struggles. Right? Because we all have this tendency to securely wall ourselves off from other people and stay in the little group we're comfortable with. I have that tendency. You have that. We all have that tendency, right? And there's a name for those safety little groups that are secure. That we, you know what we call them? We call them cliques. <laughs> That's what we call them. We call them cliques. And there is nothing more dangerous. Nothing snifles out the Great Commission and the church. Nothing stirs up animosity and division in the body like cliques. Like cliques. So we have to resist that temptation, right? The temptation we all have, that temptation to cloister ourselves away with those whom we're comfortable with, but rather we must pursue those who make us uncomfortable. <laughs> we look for them. We pursue them. We make the intentional choice that, hey, I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to surround myself with. I'm going to go get lunch with somebody that makes me a little uncomfortable. That's a good thing. You know, when I first met Caitlin in college, I, I noticed her bright red hair, <laughs> while I was on stage playing lead guitar at a worship service called Elevate at Charleston Southern University. Obviously, I wasn't focusing on worshiping the Lord too much that night. <laughs> but she caught my attention. I, I say it's providence, right? And so needless to say, um, afterwards, I was asking all my friends, who's that, that gorgeous redhead out there in the audience? I haven't seen her before. I, what's her name? How do I talk to her, right? What do I do? And so I found out after some conversations that we were kind of in completely different social circles um, you know just kind of we had our own little groups of friends and our groups really didn't have a lot of a lot of overlap with one another but I did everything I could to get outside of my comfort zone and try to bridge those social circles so I leveraged every friendship every relationship I had so that I would end up getting invited to the things I knew she would be at <laughs> so I just started showing up at places because you know I had to get to know her or I wanted her to get to know me right so I had to orchestrate that by stepping outside of my comfort zone and infiltrating a unique social group, right? Now, in a much, much bigger, much more <laughs> serious way, that's what we should be doing in the church. As we think not only in our relationship with one another, but typically as we think about evangelistic opportunities in our community, right? That we must be intentional of stepping outside of our comfort zone and begin to minister to people, get to know people, build relationships with people who are different than us, who act differently than us, who speak differently than us. And we must leverage those relationships that we build for the Great Commission. 
We must do that not only in our local body, right? But we must also do this in the community of Wilson. So let me ask you the question, who will you reach out to this week? Who can you invite to lunch after church today? Who can you die to your comforts and preferences for in order to serve those who are different than you? So if you're new here this morning, we're glad you're here. And we want to welcome you to Redemption Church. And we welcome you no matter your background, because we are a group of sinners who have been saved and redeemed by the grace of God alone. And so whether today you're a born-again believer and you're just looking for a church home, or whether you're a, uh, someone who's just trying to figure out the Christian faith and understand what the gospel is, we are glad you are here. And we would love to share with you more about how Christ has transformed our lives, how, how he has given up his life, sacrificing it upon the cross, and that those who believe and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord can receive the forgiveness of sins and, and, and receive the grace and love of God. So that's you. We're, we're glad you're here, and we'd love to talk to you more about Christ. But however, when we die to our comforts, and when we begin to reach out to one another, we begin to display the true unity of the body. Because after all, members are distinct from one another. We are all baptized into one body. We have all drunk from the one spirit. So though we possess unity in one spirit, we should celebrate the diversity in the church. And that leads to the second point this morning, that we are arranged in diversity. We are arranged. So, so Paul picks back up in verse 14 this illustration of the body, and he emphasizes the diversity of the members within the body, that the, the members of the body are different. There are different parts. We aren't all the same, nor should we aspire to be all the same. Just because you don't fit a certain mold in your gifting doesn't mean that you can't make a contribution to the body of Christ. Paul says the foot shouldn't envy the hand and think it's worthless because I'm a foot, right? The ear shouldn't mourn the fact that he's not an eye. So as Paul elaborates, you know, if everyone was an eye, then where would the sense of hearing be? And if everyone was an ear, then where would be the sense of smell? So there's a few observations as we think through what Paul's saying here in this section, right? You know, first, each of us should be content in the gifting that God has given us. However God has gifted you, be content with us. We shouldn't be envious of one another's gifting. And we should be content with the gifting that God has given us. And though we should be thankful that God has placed us with other believers who complement our own gifting, we should never be jealous of them, though. We also see that, that the church should thank God for its diversity. It's a good thing that God makes the church diverse. It's a good thing we're not all the same. It's the way God designed it. And so... If we were all the same, there would be major deficiencies and disobedience in the congregation, right? So it's good that we're different. And we also see, as Paul says here, that the diversity of Christ's gifting in the church reflects the wisdom of God's arrangement of the body. God arranges the body and gives gifts according to his sovereign purposes. Look at verse 18 of the text, right? God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. See, the diversity of gifting in the body is a good gift set by the wisdom of God. You aren't in this room for no reason, right? God has placed you here. He has placed you within this hopefully soon-to-be body of the local church in August as we're coming together and covenanting at that time. And, and you're here for a purpose, for a reason, to be served and used by God in your gifting that he has given you. We shouldn't all be the same. 
One of the uh, early pioneers of the contemporary Christian music world was a guy by the name of Steve Taylor. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you've never heard of him before, but in 1982, he wrote a song called I Want to Be a Clone. (laughs) That's that's the name of the song. It's a satirical song. It's not meant to be taken seriously. It's tongue-in-cheek, and it's meant to be provocative, and he tended to be provocative. But he talks about this idea that in the church, people just tend to want everybody to act the same, to be the same. So let me share with you a little bit of his lyrics, just because uh, they're, they're kind of funny. He says, they told me that if I'd fall away, they, oh, excuse me, let me start over. They told me that I'd fall away unless I followed what, the say, what they say. Who needs the Bible anyway? I want to be a clone. Their language, it was new to me, but Christianese got through to me. Now I speak it fluently. I want to be a clone. And this is the chorus. Be a clone and kiss conviction goodnight. Cloneliness is next to godliness, right? I'm grateful that they showed the way because I could never know the way to serve him on my own. I want to be a clone. So it's a bit tongue-in-cheek and it's a bit humorous and it's in that classic 80s weird music style, right? So it's, it's pretty fun to listen to. But it's a tongue-in-cheek reminder that the church shouldn't be seeking to produce clones. We shouldn't all be the same. Yes, we are united in our doctrine. Yes, we're united in our theology and our convictions. But we shouldn't all look the same. We shouldn't all dress the same. We shouldn't all talk the same. And then, of course, we should be serving him in different capacities and ways. But one of the big questions as we think about a passage like this, and a question you might be asking now, is, well, how do I know what my spiritual gifting is? Determining your gifting is not done in isolation. You're not meant to figure that out by yourself. But rather, the church is the context through which our gifting is discovered and affirmed. So through the guidance of the church's leadership, your gifting should be discovered and sharpened over your ministry. That the elders in particular of the church have the responsibility of training and mobilizing the body of Christ to to mission and service. It's one of their responsibilities. However, the counsel of other believers is just so helpful in helping us figure out how God has gifted us. So if you're unsure of how you're gifted, what your spiritual gift may be, well, just just ask another brother or sister in the Lord who knows you really well and say, be honest with me. What what are my gifts? What what way can I be best used to serve the church? You know, it's popular nowadays to try to figure out your spiritual gifts through some sort of assessment survey, which is just a baptized version of like Myers-Briggs personality test is really what it is. (laughs) But, But the best way for determining your gifting isn't through taking a test. (laughs) but it's through the context of the community in the local church. That's how you find it. So the body of Christ grows and thrives when each member discovers their gifting and is using their gifting for the building up of the church. But there is a word of caution as we think about this idea of spiritual gifts and the diversity in the body. Because it's easy to use the diversity of our gifting as an excuse for disobedience. For example, you might say, well... You know, I don't have the spiritual gift of evangelism, so I'm not going to share the gospel with anybody. I'm going to let people who are gifted in that do that part. Or, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not really gifted in hospitality, so uh, I'm just going to be closed off and grumpy and not talk to anyone. <laughs> right? Or, you know, I'm, I'm not gifted in teaching the Bible. That's not my gift. I struggle to communicate publicly. So since I'm not gifted in teaching, I'm just not going to study the Bible myself. I'll let other people do it and just tell me about it, right? No, that's called disobedience. It's called sin, right? Certain aspects of the Christian life aren't determined by your gifting, but simply by whether you will obey the Lord or not. Now, some of us will excel in these areas more than others, 
But there are some things in the Christian life we're commanded to do. We're commanded to evangelize. We're commanded to love one another. We're commanded to study the scriptures and grow in our knowledge of Christ. Those are things that you do, whether you're gifted in them or not, right? That's something we do. So the goal is that each member of Christ's body is ultimately serving in some capacity. That if you're not serving in the body, if you're not using your gifts to build up other members within the church, you're not a member of the body, you're a parasite, right? If you're not contributing like a hand or an ear, right? But instead, like a parasite, you're sucking nutrients out of the body for your own selfish pursuits. Every member of the church ought to be receiving ministry from the body and giving ministry to the body. You receive ministry from the body, the body's ministering to you, but in turn, you are ministering to others. It goes both ways. If it's only going one way, you're not a member of the body, you're your parasite, right? So, so what will be your area of service in Redemption Church? Now, we're still trying to figure out the specific needs of our church, but as we've already have some volunteer positions to help out on Sunday morning, we have honestly, we've just been blown away and overwhelmed by the number of you that are already committed to serving and helping out on Sunday mornings, whether it's set out, whether it's in the set, sound booth, whether it's with children. We are just encouraged about those positions and the number of volunteers, and no doubt as we fine-tune our leadership structure and our positions and our ministry. There are going to be other areas of, of leadership and service in the church that we will need to fill. But I do want to push back for a second on this idea of holding an official position in the church in order to do ministry. You know, at Redemption, we really don't have any desire to create some sort of complex structure of teams or committees with chairs and co-chairs. That's just, that's just not what we're going to do, right? Because in many ways... <laughs> That sort of complexity of official positions of ministry in the church, it just tends to siphon off time and energy that can be devoted to serving one another in much more relational and organic ways, right? You see, the front life, front lines of serving doesn't happen in an official position that you hold, a title, but it happens in the rhythm of our lives together. That it happens often in unseen and unplanned ways as you're serving one another behind the scenes, often without any formal recognition. So just because you don't have an official position in Redemption Church doesn't mean that, that you can't serve and minister to others. In fact, I would say in many ways you're freed up to do more of that because you don't have those responsibilities, right? So what are some things you can do? Well, you can bring food to a family in the church going through a difficult time simple active way of service the body right or you could help out a struggling young mom by just coming over one day watching the kids and doing her laundry a simple act of love and service to another member right you could get lunch with another man in the church to talk to him to counsel him as he's going through marriage issues with his wife you could read the scriptures provide wise counsel pray together provide accountability or you could just help out an elderly lady in the church, right, by just going over and cutting her grass, eating lunch with her, praying with her. That's ministry. That's ministry. And listen, you don't need to be given permission to do that. Just do it. <laughs> just serve and care for one another. We must serve the body of Christ, whether it's in official capacity or not. We all must be intentional and caring for one another and spurring one another on towards maturity in Christ. And listen, when the whole body of the church is doing this, when everybody is engaged in this type of ministry, then the church is a beautiful thing to witness. 
And it's a beautiful thing to be a part of as each member is operating within their own gifting to intentionally exalt Christ, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the world for the glory of God. So in so doing, the church is being built up and united. And even though there are many parts functioning in different ways and in different giftings, the one body is being united together and being built up together for the glory of God. So God arranges us in our diversity. But this leads us to a third aspect of the church. And it's this, that God intends that we are reliant upon one another and community. That we are reliant on community. We see this in verse 21 through 26. So with the dynamic of the differing members working together in the church, each member, Paul says, is dependent upon one another. Paul says, the eye cannot say, I have no need of you. Nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you, right? That, that a part of the body, he says, might appear to be weak and kind of unimportant and just not very significant. But Paul says those parts are actually the ones that are indispensable. That each part of the body is dependent upon the other for its survival and for its maturity. That the body survives by each part working in cooperation with the other. So the parts of the body that seem insignificant are anything but. Every part of the body is essential in Christ's church. And one of the ways we express our dependence upon Christ is by being reliant upon his church. That we are not meant to live the Lone Ranger Christian life by ourselves, doing it our own way. We need, God designed us to be reliant upon one another. So one of the ways we show our dependency upon Christ alone is that we depend upon his church to love us, to teach us, to mature us, to rebuke us, to encourage us. It means that we come within the context of the community because it means I believe that God has designed my spiritual flourishing to happen within the context of the community of the local church. Now, I'm sure you could maybe testify, but I'll testify myself. The times in my life when I've been the most weakest spiritually has been the times when I've been least connected to a local church. Think back in college where for a couple years I was just jumping around from church, just kind of attending on Sunday. There was a lot of spiritual struggle during that time because I wasn't known by anybody. I was living in isolation. I'm sure I was attending but I wasn't known. I wasn't in the community of the church as a covenant member of a local body. You see, God doesn't arrange his body at random, but rather he puts particular believers with particular gifts in a particular location for a particular purpose, right? Every member of Christ's body has been given a God-given assignment for the contribution and for the building up of the body. It's the way God intended so just because you might not be up here preaching a sermon each week doesn't mean that your assignment is any less significant or that my assignment is even any more significant. Some gifts are more public. Some are more evident in the life of the church. Of course, teaching being a very visible example of that. But however, much of our ministry to one another is done in secret and private, behind the scenes, with no one observing, nobody praising but yet every act of ministry and the care and building up of the saints is invaluable. The intentional care for one another is expressed in verse 25 and verse 26, right? Look at, it, look at what Paul says here. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. God has designed the church to display his glory through the beautiful unity of service to 
towards one another. That though the Corinthian church was filled with factionalism, pride, division, self-serving exaltation, Paul says there's a better way. There's a better way to be a church. I'll show you a more excellent way. The way of love. Right? And he goes into that in 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't he? See, part of being the body of Christ means that we covenant together with one another. To love each other in this way, we commit to one another to serve as Paul's describing here in 1 Corinthians 12. That if the confession of the church marks what the church believes, the covenant, the church covenant, marks how a church commits to live together. The church covenant specifies the the covenantal dynamics of what it means to be a member of a local church and how how we love one another and serve one another and speak to one another and how we will live together before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So coming in August, the founding members of Redemption Church will come together to sign our church covenant. And that will be a special day as we commit before God, to care for one another, to serve for one another, to love one another, to build one another up. And you'll be hearing much more about our church covenant in the weeks to come. But let me, let me close out the sermon this morning by reading what will be the covenant of Redemption Church. And as we conclude, I pray that as I read this covenant for us, that you would give careful thought and prayer to whether you will, if you will be a part of this covenant community, whether the Lord is leading you to become a member of Redemption Church. Every member of Redemption Church will sign this covenant as a declaration of the commitment that you made before God and before the body of Christ. So will you commit to being united with this local church? Will you use the gifting God has given you to serve, build up, and love Redemption Church? And with that in mind, let me read our church covenant. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of the Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek divine aid to enable us to walk circumspectly and watchfully in the world, denying ungodliness and every worldly lust. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will endeavor by example and effort to win souls to Christ. 
We will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, with this covenant on our minds and reflecting upon it, we pray, Lord, that you would make it clear whether we need to covenant and be a part of the body of Redemption Church. Lord, as we look towards covenanting together and officially becoming a church in August, Lord, I pray that all who are here who are seriously considered being a member of this body would heed carefully the words spoken today from 1 Corinthians 12, would listen carefully to the commitment that they would make in the actual writing of the covenant and signing of it. Father, we pray that Redemption Church would be a beautiful assembly of saints, united but yet diverse, united upon the foundation of Christ and the gospel, united upon the, found, the cornerstone of Jesus, but Lord, yet diverse in our giftings. And Lord, that even though we are a people so very different, different in our skin color, different from where we're from, where we grew up, how old we are, different in so many ways. Lord, that in your Spirit's power, you would make us one. And that even though we're diverse, we would relish the unity that we have as we have all been united to Christ in faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would be intentional in building relationships with those who are different than us that we would serve people who are different than us, whom we don't know, who are outside of our comfort zone. And Lord, that each and every one of us would be so sacrificial, so servant-hearted, that each and every member of the body is serving and caring for one another so that the whole body might be building itself up in love as a testimony to your gospel in this city and as a wonderful declaration of the glory of Christ manifest through the lives of the people of Redemption Church. Father, as we sing, Lord, may we sing worthy to Christ. May we praise him and give him glory and honor for what he has done in our life and the redemption that we have through him. And Lord, may we praise him and worship him at this moment. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.